Well, okay, see how we live. Man. Man, I'm excited to be here, guys. It is a, it is a good night. I, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Scott Johns. I grew up here in the Kansas City area. Um, I'm on staff with Lenexa Baptist Church. I'm a pastoral intern. I serve in the high school ministry, and I'm excited to be here with the, with the 20-somethings tonight. But hey, for those of you who don't know, you know, well, first of all, uh, if you would have told me about like five years ago even that I'd be living and, and working as a youth minister, I would have kind of laughed at your face. You know, I'll talk more about that later, a couple reasons why I know God radically changed my life in, in college. But I would have kind of laughed at your face. But I've learned a lot, you know, in this season of working with, with high schoolers. And there's one, like, big difference, I think, between, like, the block and, and high school ministry. is In high school ministry, there's this, like, really glaring, like, blatantly obvious thing where it's really obvious when, like, someone's mom dropped them off. You know, like, what I mean is, like, their mom dropped them off and, like, pushed them in the door. And, hey, I'm not hating if you're here tonight because your mom dropped you off, maybe even made you come, you know, told you about There's a bunch of people here that said, hey, to be honest, heard about the block from mom. You know, that is great. I'm glad you're here. And I want to let you know I cannot tell that that's the case. So I'm glad you're here. That's the big difference between high school ministry and the block. But like I said, I grew up around here. Um, I'm from Overland Park. I went to Olathe East High School. Let's go Hawks. And uh, then I went to Kansas State University where I got an accounting degree. That is awesome. And a great piece of paper that is on a shelf somewhere. And I don't use it. It was an expensive one. And it, I can't even say it was worth it. But I went there. And I have it a degree. It says uh, actually, it actually says business administration on it. I don't know how they know I'm an accountant, but I'm not, so it doesn't even matter. So I'm here, and about two years ago, I was actually at the time trying to move overseas and be a missionary, but this thing I called COVID happened and messed that all up. And I was here, and I remember talking with my good buddy, Nick, who a lot of you guys know, and he talked about this thing that at one point was just an idea, said, hey, what if we had this night called The Block? And a bunch of young adults got in a room together and sought to work together to push each other towards Christ. What if they went together and, and learned about how to build their life on what counts? And at that point, about two years ago, it was just a dream. And look where we're at today. Man, it has been an awesome couple years here at the block. But I've just kind of been along for the ride. And I've been enjoying it. And today, usually, you know, they let me talk like a little bit up here. Give me the mic for a couple minutes. Usually come up here, tell some like sports story that no one really cares about. But um, I'm here today, and they're letting me talk for a little bit longer than that. But I'm excited specifically because I love the book of 2 Timothy. Right, so we've been in this series called To Timothy, and we've been looking at this guy named Paul, who at one point in his life went from literally persecuting Christians, literally killing them, to, to having his life radically changed by Jesus, and then turning around and now becoming one of the greatest missionaries there ever was for Christ. Right, we've been looking at this, and he's writing to one of his buddies named Timothy, his faithful disciple Timothy, who's a guy he's been investing his life in. This is a guy he said is faithful, and he's writing this letter, 2 Timothy, kind of as like his last charge to him. We'll look at that a bit later. We see that, that Paul thinks his life is kind of coming to an end. He sees it coming to an end, and he, he writes 2 Timothy as if to give Timothy this last bit of knowledge, the final charge. 
Right, he even literally says that in chapter 4, which we're looking at tonight, this idea of Paul's final charge for Timothy. So I was thinking about uh, this, this idea of a charge, you know, like some kind of hype speech or something like that. Like I said, I, I'm not going to come up here and just like tell another sports story, like that'd be the easy way out. But naturally, the first thing I thought of when I thought of this idea of a charge was high school basketball. Right, and so I thought specifically of my freshman year of basketball, though, and I had this coach. His name was uh, Coach Brown. He's a great guy. Um, he actually recently just passed away pretty tragically, but he was a great coach, and he left a lasting impact, and a lot of that was because of this idea of, of a charge, of that locker room speech. He was very good at it. He was very good at, at raising up young men, kind of bridging the gap from middle school to high school. But he, I, there's this one thing that I'll never forget. It, it was this charge. He started off at the beginning of the season. He had this bunch of, of pencils. And we're kind of sitting there like, what is he, well, I mean, what's coach going to do with this? Right? And, and he takes a pencil one by one. He goes, hey, look at this. Right? These pencils, they break. And breaks them across his leg or even just in his hands. Like, didn't have to try hard, but the pencil broke. And then he took all of them together. And he goes, but look, hey, can't break them if they're all together. Right, and it was kind of cheesy at that moment, but he like gave us this like thing about teamwork. You know, if we're on a, on our own island, you know, we're gonna we're gonna break. Or it's obviously impactful. I don't remember what it was, but um, it was good. And he, he gave us told us a lot of pencils together can't break. We're like, cool, coach. That's great. And it wasn't until about halfway through the season, we're, we're losing by like 25 at halftime or something. That's not important. But we're we're getting absolutely killed in this game. And coach, would you know it, he reaches into his bag, pulls out the pencils, right? Comes out of nowhere, pulls out the pencils. We're like, this is going to be good, right? And so he starts taking them, and he's screaming at us. And, and he takes one, he breaks it on his leg, and he's chucking them on the wall. Pencil after pencil, he's chucking them. He's like, you guys are playing like a bunch of individual pencils. And like, we're like freshmen in high school, and I mean, it really like stood out to us then. You know, it's a good illustration, but... We went out there, and I'll never forget it, just pencil after pencil, he's throwing it. And we went back out there, and probably still lost by a lot. But the, the speech was impactful, right? And I'll never forget it. It was, it was a couple months ago, like I said, when he, he passed away, and one of my buddies, his name's Simon, he texted me, he goes, hey, do you remember that time uh, Coach Brown had all those pencils? <laughs> and I, I, was, I was dying laughing because I just, the, the picture came to mind. You see this idea of, of his charge, of like this, this charge left a lasting impact on us that I'll never forget, right? So this is what we look at, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says this is his final charge to Timothy. We're going to take a look at that tonight, but first let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for tonight, God. I thank you for bringing each and every person here, God. I don't know where they are at with you. I don't know how they feel about you, God, if they've been following you, or if this is something they're just checking out. God, but I pray that you would help us as we look at your word and we see what Paul wrote to Timothy and see how it applies to our lives still today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Right, so look with me in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, if you have your Bibles or if you have it on your phone. It says this, maybe. It says this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. 
So, so Paul starts off here with the phrase in verse 1 that, that emphasizes the serious nature of what he's about to tell Timothy. You see, the phrase solemnly charge, it, it comes from this Greek word which translates to testify or, or to bear witness, right? And who is he testifying or bearing witness in front of? He says God and Jesus. You see, that this is interesting here because Paul is actually highlighting the deity of Jesus, or in other words, the word that Jesus is God um, but also a part of the Trinity here by using that connective and. He says, he says God and Christ Jesus. You see, we know that the Bible says that Jesus is God's son who is, who is fully man and fully God. But, but then Paul continues to describe Jesus by describing him and, and says his authority that he has as the judge of the living and the dead. He reminds us of that authority of Jesus. He, he's reminding Timothy that Jesus has been given authority as judge. You see, this is interesting here. Uh, so, so what does this mean? Well, we see in the book of 2 Corinthians 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 10, it says this. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. This is Paul writing to a church in a place called Corinth. But he's saying that, that we all must receive compensations for our deeds done in the body. You see, the Bible is abundantly clear that we're going to be held accountable for our actions. In other words, what we do for Christ. Well, let me also be clear in saying this, that you cannot do anything to earn salvation or to earn God's love, to earn eternity with God. The Bible is abundantly clear in that. The, the Bible says in the book of Ephesians, it's, it's chapter 2, 8 and 9, it says it's through grace alone we've been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So the word is clear, there's nothing that you can do to earn God's love or approval. However, the word is also clear that if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, God will reward you for what you have done, whether good or bad. You see, we have a responsibility as believers in Jesus to live differently, to live differently from the world. We have been given a task. We're called to suffer. We're called to live against the grain of the world. And we're going to be held accountable for what we do. Then at, at, we see at the end of verse 1, Paul says, And by his appearing and his kingdom. His appearing refers to the second coming of Christ. Or in other words, that, that Jesus is in fact coming back. You see, we know the Bible told of a savior of a world who would come to save man from their sins by dying in an unrighteous death on a cross and that man was Jesus. But Paul also reminds us here that Jesus is indeed coming back to judge the world, to claim his people, and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Right, so all that being said, Paul establishes here, he's got a charge for Timothy. And the charge has been given knowing that God, who, who is the God of the universe and his son, who by the way was who he said he was, they're his witnesses. So you're probably saying to yourself right now, Scott, that is great. We get it. Can you please get to the charge? Yes, I can. Here we go. Charge! Look with me in verse 2. Uh, yep. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instructions. You see, Paul's first command is this. He says to preach the word and to be ready at all times. At first, I was looking at this verse, and it really jumped out to me, and it looked familiar, but I wasn't sure why, and then it clicked. Right? I remembered 
this verse in 2 Timothy 3, which we actually looked at last week, is 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 16 and 17, which says, All scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I was reminded of that. And so that's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And then look, just in two verses later, chapter 4, verse 2, he uses mostly the same language, but it's in the form of a command. Or in other words, in chapter 3, he reminds us that God's word is useful. And then in chapter 4, he says, use it. He reminds us of the usefulness of God's word, but then says, use it. And what does that look like? Well, he tells us, he says, well, preach it. Tell other people about what the word says. He says, know it. Reprove, rebuke, use it to correct people. Exhort, use it to lift people up. Instruction, well, use it to teach people. Guys, I think there are two clear takeaways here. One, guys, you have to know the word. You got to read your Bibles. It's important. That sounds basic, but we have been given a book of everything that was done and everything that is going to be done, and are we treating it that way? You have to read your Bible. Know the Word. The second thing I think we learned from this is own the Word. And what do I mean by this? Well, I think that is what Paul's getting at in telling Timothy to be ready in season and out of season. Guys, there's no on and off switch. You can't just turn it on and off. You can't just own the Word sometimes when it's convenient, or or when it's easy. He said, being ready in season and out of season. You gotta be ready at all times. You have to own the word. You see, Paul describes this uh, in the the book of Philippians. It's Philippians 1, uh, verse 27. He's calling the church in Philippi to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. To to live in a manner worthy of the, the gospel. In other words, when people look at your life, do they see the gospel? Do they get a picture of who Jesus was by looking at how you live? Yes, are are you telling them about Jesus? Are you using your words? But are you also showing them? You know, one of my life verses is actually 2 Timothy 2.15, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. Jack helped us see what that looks like, but but it says this. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. I want to live my life in such a way that people look at me, not for my glory, but they look at me and say, wow, Scott knows the word of God and he does it. He knows what God's word says and, and he puts it into practice. He correctly handles the word of truth. That is such a compliment. You know the word and you do it. I want people to look at my life and say that. Guys, you have to know the word and own the word. You see, uh, Paul continues in verses 3 and 4. It says this. It says, For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. You, say, you see, in, in other translations, instead of saying, 
wanting to have their ears tickled. It says having itching ears. Now, I don't know about you, but I can relate to this idea a lot more of having itching ears. And, and maybe it's because I'm not the biggest physical touch guy. I'm not. Right? But the idea of having my ears tickled sounds terrible. <laughs> it sounds bad. Right? So personally, I choose the having itching ears version, but I will not judge you if you're an ears tickled guy, okay? But personally, I want to make it clear, I've drawn a line in the sand and I am an itchy ear guy, so no judgment. Some, some judgment. Judgment. Uh, regardless, hey, Paul is warning Timothy here that a time is coming where people will stop seeking truth and turn to whatever satisfies what they want to hear. They're going to start denying truth, or even that there is truth, and they're going to turn away from what? They're going to turn aside to myths. Man, does that sound like our world today or what? We, we live in a world today that is in absolute denial of absolute truth. Absolute denial. The, the idea that something is absolutely true complete, unwavering, regardless of your feelings or regardless of the circumstances, is absurd. In fact, our country today, it stands on the premise that everyone, in fact, should seek their own truth. What's true to you? Find your truth. It's a big thing among people our age. Find your truth. That doesn't even make sense. You see, in our world, especially in America, but also the world in general, Everything's gray. It's just gray. What do I mean by this? It's the idea that there's no line that you cannot cross. It's just gray. Everything's a gray area. There's no line. There's no truth. It's just gray. Do what you want. It's not really clear what you should or shouldn't do. It's just gray. You see, as I was thinking about this, I, I thought about how the enemy, how Satan must rejoice in this. The, his scheme to cloud the truth, it's working in America. He must rejoice in, in this idea that everything's gray. There's no compass. There's nothing absolutely true to stand on. You know, I was tempted to think that this is a new thing, a new development in society. But as I studied God's word, I actually came to realize it's the oldest thing. You know, I went all the way back to the book of Genesis where God created man. He created the world. He created everything. He created Adam and there was Eve. And guys, they had one rule. Literally just one rule. Right? And what was it? Hey, just don't eat from this one tree. Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't do that. Hey, one rule. Everything else? Great. And what happened? The serpent, it says, this is Genesis 3, it says, the serpent, who's Satan, he came along and said this. He said, Eve, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from that tree? Man, did God really say that you would die? Surely not. Surely you won't die. God doesn't want what's best for you. And what happened? Adam and Eve ate from the tree and sin entered the world. And from that moment on, this has been one of Satan's main tactics. I mean, look at the prevalence of this in America today. Man, did God really say you were called to live a sexually pure life? Surely that doesn't mean pornography. If God really made sex, 
Why would he not want you to enjoy it outside the context of marriage? That doesn't sound very loving to me. Did did God really say that there's a clear design for marriage between a man and a woman? How could God say that? How could a God of love say that? Did God really say that he knit you together in your mother's womb and that before you were even born, he knew everything about you? Did God really say that? That doesn't even make sense. How could God say that? You see, we live in a world today that rejects the idea of truth of any kind. But guys, the Bible is abundantly clear. There is truth, and his name is Jesus. It's a man. The Bible says this. This is all stuff the Bible says, too. The Bible says this. It says, this is Jesus. It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the truth. Jesus said that. Do you guys realize the audacity of that claim? What Jesus is saying there? I'm the truth. I am who I say I am. That's what he's saying. You see, from the moment sin entered the world, God declared that blood had to be shed for sins. Someone had to die. The Old Testament prophesies of a savior of a world who is to come. Right, it talks about a king who's going to come to reclaim the throne. And it came through the form of Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Right? Jesus gave up eternal wealth and riches in heaven to come to earth and die on a cross for sinners like you and me. This is 100% true, and you can take it to the bank. You know why? It's because Jesus was who he said he was. You know how we prove this? It's because he died on the cross, which the Bible said would happen, but then he came back. He rose again three days later. Guys, the history books, they don't deny the life of Jesus. They don't even try to deny his death on a cross. They try to deny the resurrection. But guess what? They can't find his body because it's not there. His body's not there. They can't find it. Guys, there is truth. And it is a man, and his name is Jesus. Give your life to him today. You can trust him. Paul continues in verse 5 with his call to Timothy. He says this. He says, but you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul tells Timothy to be, sorry, Paul tells Timothy to be sober, to be clear-minded. 
to endure hardship, to persevere. He says to be an evangelist. Hey, tell other people about Jesus. Fulfill your ministry. Work diligently to do everything God has called you to do. The phrase endure hardship, it stuck out to me. This phrase, it actually comes from a Greek word which means to suffer physical pain, hardship, troubles, problems, difficulties, evils, distress. You see, this is Paul's reminder to Timothy that it's not going to be easy to live the Christian life. In fact, in many ways, it's going to make his life way harder, like considerably more difficult, more painful, more troublesome. But what's in store for those who run the race? It's a crown of righteousness, which Jesus, who, as we said earlier, is the judge of the living and the dead, will award not only to Paul, but to everyone who places their full trust in the name of Jesus, a crown of righteousness. You see, it's going to cost you everything to follow Jesus, but it is more worth it than you could ever know. More worth it. You see, Paul describes how he came to this conclusion in his own life of, of weighing the cost and the book of Philippians chapter 3, 7 through 8, it says this, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. It's just garbage. Guys, it is going to cost you everything to follow Jesus. Every area of your life. Not just some. But it is more worth it than you could ever know. We cannot even fathom the worth of a crown of righteousness. When on that day, Jesus is going to look at his follower who fought the good fight, who finished the course, who kept the faith, and said, well done, my good and faithful servant. I can't fathom that. You see, Paul describes his life in verse 6 as being poured out like a drink offering. This is what I was referring to earlier when I said, Paul seems to see his life as coming to an end. You know, think of like a glass pouring out. It's almost empty. It comes almost empty. That's what Paul's saying. His life's coming to an end. But what he's referring to is called a libation. It's a drink offering. It's when in biblical times, priests would take the sacrificial offering of an animal or of some sort, and they'd take wine or honey or water sometimes, and as it was burning, they'd pour it on the sacrifice or in front of it. And all of this was said to create this aroma that was pleasing to God because of the heart of what they were doing. Right? But Paul frequently uses this idea of sacrifice to describe the way a follower of Jesus should live. You see, he says this in Romans 12, 1 to the church in Rome. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as what? As a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So Paul's comparing himself to a drink offering, but do you know who the ultimate drink offering was? I'll give you a hint. If you can't guess at this point, it was Jesus. At the Last Supper, when Jesus was sitting with his disciples, guys, this is a meal when Jesus knows he's about to be arrested, at, well, first betrayed by one of the people there, and then arrested, and then beaten, and then put on the cross for the sin of man, he's sitting there at this last supper with these guys, and he gives them a cup of wine, and he says what? This is Luke 22, verse 20. It says, and in the same way, he took the cup 
after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. You see, when Jesus was crucified, it was a normal practice of, uh, of crucifixion that after a while, they'd, they'd see if you, you were dead, obviously. They'd check if you were dead, right? And what they would do is at that point, if you weren't dead, they'd walk up to you and they'd break your legs. Because at that point, if you had somehow held yourself up with your legs or breaking your legs, and then surely enough, in hours later, you, you'd die from asphyxiation, right? But the Bible says, this is the book of John, you can look it up. It says they went and they saw that Jesus was already dead. So he was already dead. And what does it say? It says that one of the Roman soldiers anyway took a spear and stabbed it in Jesus' side. And what happened? Blood and water came pouring out. His blood was poured out as the ultimate sacrifice. I mean, there was already probably enough blood there, but that's just the nail in the coffin. You see, while Jesus' sacrifice was ultimately in his death, Paul is saying his sacrifice comes through his life. In other words, because of Jesus' death, Paul gives his life. So the takeaway is this. Because Jesus died for us, we need to live for him. This is how we glorify God. In everything we do, we live as a sacrifice to him. And what's the reward, guys? It's a crown of righteousness, which is far greater than anything we could imagine. You see, Paul closes out his letter to Timothy with, with some personal concerns he has. He mentions some of the other disciples, uh, where they're at, and uh, also makes some comments about some people who are opposing him. Uh, but there's one I want to take a look at in, in particular. So look with me in verse 9. It says this. It says, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. You see, Paul mentions here a few people, but look at what he says about Demas. He says that Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted him. You see, there's really not much about Demas in the Bible, but he's mentioned three times. One of them is in the book of Philemon. It's Philemon 1, uh, chapter 24, where it lists a couple people, one of them being saying, it says, Demas, one of my fellow workers. So Demas is described as one of Paul's fellow workers. You see, the book of Philemon was written about five years before 2 Timothy, and so sometime in those five years, Demas went from being one of Paul's fellow workers to being described as someone who deserted him because he loved the present world. Something happened. You see, Demas, who, who once lived for the very things Paul did, the guy who wrote this book, he gave it all up. He got caught up in the things of the world. Paul uses this world present as in what is now, what is only temporary. As Demas gave up what is eternal for stuff that is just temporary. You know, one of my spiritual heroes, his, his name is Joel, and he, he was speaking on this passage and specifically about Demas to a, gr a group of committed believers a couple years ago, and I was in the room, and he was telling us about Demas and kind of described this thing. He was using this picture of a highway, right? If the highway, you're on the highway, this is the Christian life, right? You're, you're running on the highway. You're, you're following God. And then there's exits, like there's exit ramps. And he described all these different exit ramps, these things of the world that people could get caught up in. And all of a sudden, you just take a slight turn, 
and all of a sudden you're going, up, uh, you're going the other way. You're off the highway. You got caught up in something, and you're off the highway. You see, as, uh, as Joel, my friend, w- was speaking about this, he just broke down and started crying. He, he couldn't help but cry. Like, I'll never forget that. He went on to explain that as he was speaking, all he could think about were people he knew that at one point were so firm in their beliefs, people who trusted in Christ and lived for him, and somewhere along the way, they saw an exit ramp. They saw something that was temporary, and they chose that over God. Maybe it was something little at first. They just added up. Even in my short few years of being a Christian, I, I have some friends that come to mind. And guys, to be honest, that's, that's maybe one of the hardest things about following Jesus is seeing other people choose the temporary over what is eternal. It's hard. So what is that for us, young adults? What are the temporary things that could lead us from God? Maybe it's the American dream. You know, the car, the job, the money, the house, the boat, the boathouse. Where does it end? Maybe it's the party scene. It's the alcohol, the drug abuse, the approval of others. Maybe it's the relationship, the bad one. Not, not even the relationship, but the one-night stands. The hookups. Whatever it is, it's temporary. Don't choose what is temporary over that which is eternal. Don't do it. Guys, I say this not coming from a place of judgment, but coming from a place of understanding because at one point in my life, I chose what is temporary over what is eternal. I chose sin. You see, uh, I grew up in a great family. I have great Christian parents. They're here. Shout out Rob and Patsy. Um, the, uh, I had great Christian parents. I have great siblings who, who came to know Christ when they were really young. Then there's me. Like, I, I fell through the cracks. I don't know what it is. But it came to the, the end of my high school career where I went through some tough stuff at home. Our family went through some hard things. And, and I was really angry at God. I was really angry at my parents, and I decided for the first time in my life I was going to do whatever I wanted, right? I was done with God, played that game my whole life, and I started to choose sin instead of God, and, and I went into college with this mentality of I'm going to do whatever I want. <laughs> I'm going to live for things I've never even lived for before. I've never tried. I'm going to live for them, right? I'm going to give my life to those things. I remember I had a conversation with my brother Blake, who's one of my best friends, and it was right before I left for college, he, he was trying to encourage me. He was like, Scott, are you going to seek out any campus ministries at K-State? Are you going to get into Bible study? There's great churches. And I, I looked at him. I, I remember I said this. I said, nah, man. I'm good. I'm just going to do what I want. You know, I got pledge ship coming up. I joined a fraternity. I got to focus on pledge ship. You know, I got... Got school, want to make a ton of money, want to get that degree. That paid off. Uh, man, I want to live for the party scene, want to live for 
the relationship. That's what I want. I'm going to do it. That's what I did. I went to college and I did whatever I wanted. And it started off as an experiment and it became my life. All of a sudden, it's, it's drunken night after drunken night. It was one night a week that turned into five. Legitimately. By, by the end of my freshman year, I, I didn't know who I was. I was doing everything that was supposed to make me happy. I was living for everything that everything or everyone else was that I was around. And I was more depressed than I have ever been. <laughs> Guys, I had night after night, I'm not making this up, I could not sleep at night. Like I had so much anxiety that I couldn't sleep because of how I was living. And I still chose it anyway. But luckily, I had this buddy and his name was Tom. You see, Tommy was a Christian. Right, But Tommy not only called himself a Christian, which I did, but his life looked different because of it. We lived very different lives. Right, So me and my, my buddy Tommy, we, we didn't do anything crazy. I mean, he just did whatever I liked. You know, we, we went and played basketball. Uh, we, we went to the rec, worked out, you know, went to Goodsense, ate turkey sandwiches. I like Goodsense. Uh, we did that, but as we're doing it, he started to read the Bible with me. Right? And, and I remember, I'll, I'll never forget this. We're at the wreck. You know, I just finished getting a pump in. Great place to read the Bible. Um, so we go, read the Bible, read Romans uh, chapter 6, verse 23. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I'm sitting there, and I look Tommy in the face, and I say, Tommy, good news. Got that verse memorized. Man, I know it. Right? And what I didn't see is that my life was not like his. Right? I knew a ton about God, but I wasn't living for him. I was not living it out, right? And it wasn't until the, the end of the year, it was about June of my freshman year, where, where I made the decision after reading that verse in, in Philippians 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 7 through 8, saw that it was going to cost me everything to follow Jesus. Not just some areas of my life, but everything. And I made the decision that that was worth it and more worth it than I could ever know. It was about five years ago. You see, now one of my favorite things to do after being a Christian, like I'm not perfect, you know, I, I struggle with sin, you know, it hasn't, it's, there's bumps in the road, I don't want to give off that judgmental, like I've got it figured out, you don't, I don't all the time, you know, I wish I, I, wish I did. But uh, I try to do the same thing Tommy did with me, right? We kind of talked about that a couple weeks ago, 2 Timothy 2, but uh, I like to look my friends in the eyes now and challenge them the same way Tommy challenged me. It's become one of the best things to look people in the eyes and say, look, it is going to cost you everything to follow Jesus, but it is more worth it than anything you could ever know, right? And, and, and the reality is, guys, I've had people say yes, and it's amazing. One of my best friends in the entire world his name's Marcus. I, I, I was more scared than anything. A couple years ago, we went to Joe's together, and my goal was to, to simply share my testimony with him. Like, it's not a big deal. It's not that deep, right? But I was just going to tell him about how, how God had changed my life, and I was going to tell him that. And we went to Kansas City Joe's, and I was so nervous, I got up, went to the bathroom, paced around for 15 minutes praying. I was like, God, just help me. Like, I need help right? But I came back, I shared my testimony with Marcus, we began reading the Bible together, and sure enough, a couple weeks later, I looked him in the eyes after we read the gospel together, and I said, Marcus, 
It is going to cost you everything to follow Jesus, but it's more worth it than you could ever know. And guess what he said? Yes, I want that. Guys, that is way better than anything I used to live for. Don't choose what is temporary over what is eternal. You see, there's a missionary, his name was Jim Elliott, right, this is back in the day. He, he had been doing jungle missions work, and he'd been going to Indian tribes in Ecuador. They had never been reached with the gospel, and he went to tell them about Jesus, right? This was January 2nd, 1956. He was 29 years old. Would you look at that? Could have come to the block, right? He was one of us young adults. Jim was doing different things than I am, right? But he went with four other missionaries to engage this tribe that was unreached with the gospel called the Alcas. Right? But the thing about the Alcas is they were a violent tribe and that they had killed any outsider they had ever come to contact with. Killed all of them. Sounds pretty violent to me. Right? But Jim and four others planned Operation Alca. It was a plan to reach the Alcas with the gospel. You see, the missionaries were flown in one by one and after just a few days, you know, it was day one, they made some contact and they thought it was successful and whatever and gets to day six where, sure enough, they get like kind of ambushed, and one of the Alcas has a spear, and Jim sees it, and right before Jim died, he had the chance to pull out a gun that he had to defend himself, but he had made a commitment with the other guys there that they would not kill an Alca who had not heard the name of Jesus, right? And so what happened is the Alcas killed all five of them, all five of them. But don't think for a second that Operation Alka ended there. Less than two years later, more people went back. And you know who it was? Elizabeth Elliot, his wife, and her daughter, Valerie, Jim's daughter, and another woman who's named Rachel Saint, whose brother was one of the original five as well. Uh, they, they moved back to the Alka village two years later, and what happened? They accepted them. Many of them became Christians, and they are now a friendly tribe. <laughs> Elizabeth went back to the very tribe who killed her husband, Valerie, the, the tribe that killed her father. And because of their faithfulness, a tribe of people who had never heard the name of Jesus now can spend eternity with him. See, the best part of the whole story is this. Jim had a journal that uh, was uncovered. It was on October 28, 1949. There's a quote in this that became very, very popular. It's this. It says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. This is a man who would years later, seven years later, be killed for trying to just tell people about Jesus. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You see, unlike Demas, Jim had a firm understanding of what is temporary and what is eternal. Choose what is eternal. So we spent this time looking at Paul's final charge to Timothy, and so I'm going to give you, you know, Scott's charge. It's kind of like, you know, the office, you know, Michael Scott. You know, it's like, it's like Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott, right there, like, this is what I got right here. It's like, Paul, Scott John. Yeah. 
But this is God's final charge is this. It's know the word, own the word. There is truth, and his name is Jesus. And do not choose what is temporary over what is eternal. That's my charge for you today. Pray with me. Lord God, thank you for this day. God, I thank you for these people in this room. God, as I said, I I don't know where they're at. But God, I don't know what they're walking through. I don't even know the half of it. God, I pray that as we look at your word tonight, we see that there is truth, God, and that there's hope, and it's in Jesus, God. Thank you for sending your son who chose to die for sinners like us. God, I pray that each and every person in this room, God, they see how much you love them. God, they would see that you just want them to give their lives to you. God, I pray that as we finish out tonight, God, even as we worship, God, that you would just draw people to yourselves. God, that you would help us as we seek to live for what is eternal over what is temporary. God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.